Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. It's New Year 1901 and the Boers have been busy over the Christmas period. Jan Smuts and Kurs de Lare defeated General Clements in the Bechalisberg. Two Boer commandos have also entered the Cape Colony and attacked British positions at various locations, while in Natal, on the 28th of December, a commando attacked Helvetia between Machadadorp in the eastern Transvaal and Leidenburg, when a British garrison was overrun with the loss of 200 men. Generals de Lare and Bayers were harassing British convoys to the south and west of Rustenburg in the Transvaal. Meanwhile, Jan Smuts targeted Mordefontein, just east of Johannesburg, and defeated a British force leading 1,500 men, having been reinforced with Liebenberg's commando. He then defeated a British relief column of 3,000 men, sent as reinforcements just for good measure. On the other side of the Transvaal, action was taking place on a more massive scale, as the plan took effect to combine General Louis Boerter's commando with General Ben Fulion's burghers. They wanted to shut down the Delagoa Bay railway line, which was now crucial for British supplies. So at midnight on the 7th of January, Boerter's men moved in from the south and Fulion's men advanced from the north in a classic pincer movement. These two commandos swept down on seven British garrisons stationed along the important railway line. They began this attack near Machadadorp, then moved westwards towards the Transvaal capital, Pretoria. The most important post along this line was at a place called Belfast, where the British had stationed 1,700 men. General Fulion was blessed with many good soldiers, but perhaps the best was a redoubtable lieutenant called Muller. He was crucial in the assault on Belfast and crept along with a small company in the tall grass to the barbed wire that had been thrown around the Belfast perimeter. They moved stealthily to the dominating hill where the British had set up a stiff defensive position. The Boers scaled the walls of the fort and overwhelmed the British in another vicious hand-to-hand fight using knives, rifle butts, fists. Then disaster for the Boers as a heavy fog rolled in which is common in this area. They began to fire on each other and in the chaos the attack was in disarray. Every one of the British posts along the line survived the Boer assaults. However, the scale and coordination of the attempt shocked British commanders, who had believed the area was only thinly populated by Boer commandos. This boded ill for future intelligence-linked operations. To the south in the Free State, more moves were afoot to support the two Boer commandos under Judge Herzog and Kritzinger. The month started with the commando wiping out the entire bodyguard force of Lord Kitchener. All 150 men were either killed, wounded or captured. This was a hand-picked corps of men and its utter destruction was another shock to the English troops. Information about these successes was withheld to some extent by the new army censors, but the Boer-friendly reporters were providing news to the outside world of these guerrilla war wins for the Boers. The most important development south, though, was the meeting in Senegal of Boer leaders, which voted for Free State President Andrew Steyn once more and nominated an executive council which proposed to build a large convoy of men for General Christian de Vett. By the time this council ended, at the end of January, de Vett had 2,000 men under his command and he set off once more to invade the Cape. The idea was to support Herzog and Kritzinger, who were already in the Cape and causing panic among some of the English-speaking citizens of the colony. By the first week of January 1901, Judge Herzog had pushed west of Daar on the main line to Cape Town. Kritzinger was even more ambitious and advanced further south than any commander had done. General French, who was in command in the region, sent his 2IC to deal with Kritzinger. Importantly, the name of the 2IC chief of staff sent on this mission was Douglas Haig. 
Haig was in his 40s and would become both famous and infamous during the First World War as the leader of the British force which suffered so terribly in the Western Front trenches. Here he was in South Africa chasing after Boer ghosts on the felt. Haig was the son of a Scots distiller whose name was known wherever whiskey was drunk and he moved in the top echelons of society at Oxford before joining the cavalry. Horses were his passion and excluded all other interests, at least for the present. Just as an aside, Douglas Haig survived the Boer War and in 1905 was the guest of King Edward at Ascot races. He met one of the maids of honour, Dorothy Maud Vivian, on a Thursday where he partnered her in a golf four-ball. On Friday, the two set off once more to play golf alone. Then they met again the next day, on Saturday, when Haig promptly proposed to her on the golf course. Apparently, it took place on the first tee. They had four children, the last dying in 2009, aged 91. So Haig was in South Africa in early 1901, leading four columns towards Kritzinger. However, he could not find the Boer commander, which had reached Willowmore, less than 100 kilometers from the sea, and was clearly threatening Port Elizabeth a few days right away. Kritzinger and Herzog had two main missions. First, to attack the English along various points, and secondly, to motivate the Cape Afrikaners to rise up in revolt and support their brethren. To add impetus, de Wet's force was supposed to join up with Kritzinger, or at least to move southwards, thus hopefully convince the so far non-active Cape Afrikaners to rise up. The plan was an eventual direct assault on Cape Town itself. It was a time of rich promise for the Boers. A ship was reportedly on the move from Europe, bringing munitions and mercenaries, and Judge Herzog, who was moving westwards, was trying to reach Lambert's Bay on the Atlantic coast with a view to a rendezvous with the vessel. That was only 250 kilometres, or 120 miles, north of Cape Town. He too would then use the new weapons and men in order to attack the symbolic centre of the British in southern Africa. Louis Boucher in the Transvaal was also planning a southwards move with his 5,000 men. In his case, it was back into Natal, and de Wet's large commando was to be used to lure the British into the Free State and the Cape. They hoped that Lord Kitchener would send a large army after the Boer general the British feared the most. The level of coordination and planning would be a real surprise for military experts back in England. This would, of course, also have political repercussions over the next year. Queen Victoria, meanwhile, was on her deathbed and awaiting news of Lord Kitchener. She would die in the last week of January, but I'll have more about the war and its effect on Queen Victoria in a later podcast. This inexorable ride south, ironically, had an unforeseen repercussion. The governor, Lord Milner, had suggested at the start of the war that the self-governing status of the Cape Colony should be rescinded. His approach was rejected for fear of upsetting the Cape Afrikaners. However, as Kritzinger and Herzog approached the Cape capital, authorities began to reconsider Milner's idea. Milner, as you'd remember, had been demanding the self-governing constitution be suspended in favour of martial law. The sudden shock of Kritzinger and Herzog would eventually lead to the Cape self-governing status being suspended and Milner was beside himself with joy. On December 31st, he'd written in his diary, I managed by a gigantic effort to galvanise people into activity today. Prolonged interviews with Sprigg, the General, and Rose Innes, the Attorney General, finally resulted in a call to arms of all loyal inhabitants issued by the military. I'm also pressing for martial law. 
As we'll see by mid-January 1901, martial law had indeed been proclaimed through the Cape, except for the areas called the Native Districts, which are modern-day Transkei, and the Cape Ports. The Loyalist militia he'd mobilised numbered 10,000 men by then, but he also paid a heavy political price for this act, as we'll hear later. He appeared to be behind the military blunders committed by Lord Kitchener. The original military plan that Milner had first proposed to Lord Roberts and then Lord Kitchener was in fact ignored. The strategy adopted could hardly have been more different from the one he wanted. Milner wanted a progressive reconquest of the new colonies of the Free State and Transvaal by gradually securing each district before taking the next. He thought by slowly occupying the country bit by bit, rather than rapidly and repeatedly scouring, was a mistake, and that was precisely what Robertson Kitchener then tried to do. We now know that Roberts's fatal flaw was his failure to garrison and police each district before moving on to the next. Milner made a telling comment to Kitchener in October 1900, after a year of war, when the mustachioed and gangly officer took over from Roberts. Milner had said, What the bulk of the people in the Free State Colony requires protection, not punishment. I do not mean to say that they do not all hate us. They do. But they love their property more than they hate the British and would be glad to see the back of the guerrillas. This comment seems to echo down the ages. It's basically what happened in Iraq, in Syria, in Vietnam, and Goda. It's the mistake the Russians made in Afghanistan, the failure to control the countryside. In the age of social media and immediacy, this failure will continue to plague armies of occupation as political leadership balance military gains against their own ego and short-term interests linked to power. General Buller, now back in England, would agree. He had called for a similar strategy because of two main reasons. Firstly, it would avoid the need further to devastate the country with all the legacy of bitterness that would create. Secondly, the key to the Transvaal was the gold mines, and once these were back to full operation, the Aitlanders or foreigners who had either left South Africa or who were living in refugee camps would flood back to the city and start the economy. Milner was aware of what he called the farce. He was not a proper administrator of the territory, as the government was only holding the larger towns and cities, and in his words, confining our operations in the rest of the country to chasing commandos whom we never catch. He then made an even more telling comment at the beginning of January 1901 in his diary, writing, But I fear on present lines we shall be at it for another twelve months, and that the amount of destruction will be enormous. I believe if we were to devastate the whole of South Africa, we should only find that we had a greater number of blackguards to deal with. By blackguards, he meant Jan Smuts, Cours de la Christian de Vette, Louis Butter, Kritzinger, Bayers, Herzog, and many other guerrilla leaders. The next sentence in his diary he scratched out with his pen, but it's still legible and reads, Besides, tens of thousands of homeless women and children to keep and feed, heaven only knows how or where. A bitter forecast. While Milner worried and Kitchener's new scorched earth policy began to yield initial results, particularly in the eastern Transvaal, Denise Reitz was dealing with a crazy horse as he and his brother continued on the campaign with General Bayers. In December, he'd been part of the Kurs de la Rey attack on General Clements in the Michalisberg at a place called Neutgedacht. Remember how the mountain fight had led to the British withdrawing and the Boers seizing a great deal of material. The first thing Raids did was to ditch his deadly Mauser in favour of the British Lee Metford rifle. 
The Boers were running out of ammunition for the German weapons and had seized tens of thousands of rounds from the British along with rifles, so naturally they kitted themselves out with the latest British equipment. They also stocked up on food after the Neutgedacht defeat. Reitz says, My brother and I enjoyed high living after the straight diet of meat and maize on which we had subsisted for so long. We were refitted from head to heel. We carried a Lee Metford rifle apiece in lieu of our discarded Moses. And above all, we were well found in horse flesh. He doesn't mean to eat, but to use as transport. He gave his large English charges away in order to reduce his stable, doing as most Boers did, riding with one or two spare horses. Denise, however, retained what he believed was probably one of the strangest horses in the entire Boer army. My father had purchased him in the Leidenburg district from a home-going burger, who he omitted to tell us that he was possessed of the devil. The horse, you see, in a nutshell, was crazy. He indulged in such extraordinary antics that the police at the government lager had declared him insane and christened him Malpert. That means crazy horse. In many ways, Malpert symbolized the hardiness and unbridled independent spirit embodied in the Boer way of life, their guerrilla war. Malpad, though, was an enigma. Sometimes he would allow a man to walk up and catch him without trouble, but at other times we had to turn out the whole government from a vice president downward to form a cordon around him. Malpad, apparently, would then pretend to go on quietly grazing, but would clearly be watching this cordon move closer until... He was hemmed in. Denise takes up the story. He would look up in assumed surprise and start to back against the ring, kicking and lashing so furiously that we had to give way, when he would go capering off, heels in the air to crop the grass nearby. The horse would leave the men cursing and laughing in his wake and then repeat the performance. But the animal allowed Denise Reitz and his brother to approach. Malpair, you see, was afraid of Denise because the Boer youngster had broken him in. In a way, once at the Leidenberg camp, after he had twice kicked his way through, I leapt at him from a distance of several feet and flung my arms around his neck. He reared and bucked and tried to bite and roll, but I locked my legs around his so that he could not shake me off, and in the end, I bested him. Tenace's brother, Arndt, had also treated Malpair for a terribly ulcered back, and the horse had shown his gratitude since by obeying him too. Malpad's reputation continued, and as the Bayer's commando moved westwards, the men continued to respect Crazy Horse. Rates explained, Often we would hear a warning cry, Look out, here comes Malpert, and the burghers would scatter beyond the reach of his heels. There was another reason why he was tolerated. Malpert was known as one of the horses with incredible endurance and courage under fire. The animal was admired precisely, for the qualities that the entire commando expected from themselves and their colleagues. To refuse to be cowed, to fight even when surrounded, to never give up. And in this spirit, they rode westwards, eventually reaching Lichtenberg, close to the Bechuanaland or Botswana border. General Bayers wanted to continue to attack Mafeking, but new orders then arrived from General Louis Boerter. They would need all these qualities of endurance and courage because in the first week of the new year, General Boerter sent word from the Eastern Transvaal that all men in Bayer's commando needed to head back to Ermelo. That was 300 miles or close to 500 kilometers away, directly back east the way they'd come. This meant transferring the force right across the breadth of the Transvaal. 
but they were doing so after the start of the rainy season. This meant the grass would provide more than enough food for the oxen and even horses, as well as watering points for all. Still, it was going to be a tough journey. There were more British troops along that route than virtually anywhere else in the country. We now began our long march, writes Wrights, riding eastward until some days later we reached back to the Machalisberg Valley once more, close to where we had taken General Clement's camp. Wright stopped there to visit his friend Jan Jobert, who was wounded at the Battle of Noetgedacht. The British had learned their lessons since the last attack and had heavily fortified the area, so the commando decided to avoid further action. That meant some danger for Reitz, but he managed to slip in and make it to the farmhouse, where Jobert lay seriously injured. Although not yet out of danger, he was on the mend, and he told me that the British were treating him very well, he writes. A surgeon came over nearly every day, and medical orderlies were on duty to attend to their want. They had brought his old mother from Pretoria to be with him, and officers from the camp down the valley often brought them fruit and other luxuries. How incredible, in a war of such bitterness, that moments of humanity can still shine. We leave Jan Jobe, who by the way made a full recovery, and the rest of Bayo's commando as they continue eastwards. Next week we'll be focusing on the action in the Cape and ride once more with Christian de Vette, who has a few more tricks up his sleeve for the British. Please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes. You can send me a message through Twitter at Des Latham or email me through the website abwarpodcast.com. Until then, goodbye.